far today, but let's go through it anyways and read, if you will. Second Peter chapter 1, 1 through 11. If you're physically able, will you stand with me in reverence and respect for God's precious word? Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things has, uh, is uh, short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the word of living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. And going through, remember, uh, as you recall, Second Peter verse by verse, started two weeks ago in doing that. And we're looking at what we've called the virtuous life of love. The virtuous life of love. And we talked about the fact by way of background that of course uh, in the light of the persecution that uh, was coming the church's way to the churches that this letter was addressed to, um, the Holy Spirit know and knew ahead of time that one thing that would that it would have to deal with that, that would be uh, prominent is that the enemy, Satan, would use the persecution of the church as an opportunity to exploit and damage the church uh, by infiltrating their ranks with those who would uh, teach false doctrine. He gives them a warning about that, and the warning comes later on in the letter, primarily about the character and nature of the false teachers and not so much about the teaching themselves. And we'll get into that, God willing. But before he goes into that, he goes into this truth that he's given us about the way we should live and respond to saving faith in a, in a, in a, in a practical sense in verses five through, um, 5 through 9. And the reason he does that, surely a reason he does that is, is that he knows, as we know, that those who are most given to fall prey to false doctrine and false teaching are the ones who are uh, not convinced of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The ones who still believe they have an appetite, they have a, 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 a scratch that the devil just loves to come and, um, I mean an itch that the devil just loves to come and scratch to lead off and to tweak uh, biblical truth ever so gently just enough to get them off base and they fall prey to uh, to uh, what ultimately really is cults. I talked to you last week about the fact that I've got a 
friend of mine who was a confessing evangelical Christian at one time, and uh, or professing uh, evangelical Christian, and later on in life fell prey to the same um, thing we're talking about here, and now is a Mormon. And I've been witnessing to him and trying to reach out to him. So far, there's been no response, but this does happen. Cults are peopled with those who profess Christian faith at one time. And so the Apostle Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knew the vulnerabilities that would come um, and the appetites. If they're not satisfied by Jesus, they'll be satisfied by somebody or something. And the truth of the matter is, if they're not satisfied by Jesus, they go unsatisfied. The Bible says the eyes of the man are never full. They're never satisfied. That's the character and nature of the lust of the flesh. It's never satisfied. So... We can nurse addictions to things to try to, uh, to, to shore up what we view as a deficient Christian faith or, or that the gospel is not enough and Jesus is not enough. But oh dear ones, He most assuredly is. Jesus is not just enough. Jesus doesn't just point us to the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And so He comes to that part in verse 5 when He talks about this progression of leading us to a faith that we can have confidence in that we've, we possess. A faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. Surely of all the things that we want to be sure about on planet earth, and I've shared this many times with people in witnessing situations, is that eternity is too long to be wrong. If there's anything on this earth that we want to be sure of, anything, and there's not even a close second, it's whether or not we know the Lord. And, having, and, and to be honest with you, that assurance... Um, sometimes um, is never is never is never realized in many Christians' lives. It could be that there's not legitimate saving faith there, but it also could be that there's some kind of plug. There's some there's something there's plugging the clogging the pipes in this progression, and that's why we want to go over it in detail and have gone over it in detail starting from last week. You remember that when he started in verse five, he said, "But also for this very reason," and we we took verse five and we we likened that or we connected that with the fact, what reason? The reason is that we've been called. We've been called to the very bosom of Jesus Christ. Because of this calling, because of this calling that you profess and the faith that has, that has gained entrance for you into the kingdom, give diligence, give attention to, vigilance, pay attention to, pursue, and add to your faith virtue. And we went at length last week to tease out that word add because there's, there's in, in my translation it says add, and yours it might have another word in there. But the best translation from everything that I've looked at about this verse, that word add, is supply. That's, that's the translation that's used in the New American Standard. Supply your faith. Our faith is not added to. The faith is the channel through which everything that's available to us flows. And, and it, what he's saying, remember we talked about last week, that this word comes from uh, a person who serves on a voluntary basis. I'm going to go over this again because I don't want you to miss this. There's so much confusion in Christian circles over the, the dynamics and the relationship between faith and works. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot have that. That uh, when he the, the, it referred to a choir master, someone who assembled and recruited people, to form a choir in order to have a play 
some of the plays, some of the signature plays that were written in Greek culture at that time. And they would have a play, and let's say that the city of Kennesaw would have a great play written by some great citizen of the, of the city, and, and they would make plans, and somebody would step up to the play and say, I'll volunteer to assemble the choir that's going to be needed to sing the music portion of the play. I will do that. I will do it on a voluntary basis, and I will do it at my own expense, and I will spare no expense. It was a loving, uh, selfless labor of love in order to put on a play in the city that would reflect well on the city, its culture, and its people. It was an act of love. And you would recruit the, 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 the choir, you would do the auditions, you would get everybody together, you would pay them some money for their time, you would pay them for outfits if they were needed, you'd pay for the best musicians that you could, you could find, you would spare no expense to make sure that we pull this off and this, this performance is done in an outstanding way. That's that word add. That the person that adds to it voluntarily supplies everything that's needed to pull off a, a peak performance. So the word supply is the best word. And here's the issue. We supply to our faith that which has been supplied to us. It's not that we take faith and then add something to it out of our own resources because we don't have any. We add to the resources that have been bequeathed to us through the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrected life. Now, in this text, and we could use many others, but in this text, we add to our faith that which has been supplied to us. We supply our faith with what is available to us. And that would be that we have obtained and like precious faith, every bit as precious and every bit as effective and powerful. It's the identical faith that the apostles possessed. It's identical. And that faith is, comes about through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Positionally speaking, and we've celebrated this many times before, we are as righteous in the sight of God as His Son is as believers because it is His righteousness in which we stand and that is gifted to the believer upon repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. The grace and peace that came our way in the knowledge of Him and here it is. And His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what's our supply? Everything that we need to supply our faith with virtue, holy living, ultimate agape love, we already have. That's what he's saying. We already have it. You have everything right now that you need and I need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. We have a holy calling by glory and by His own virtue. And He's given us exceedingly great and precious promises that promised His life, His, His salvation. It's been secured by grace through faith. And in so doing that, we are now partakers of the divine nature. So everything that we need to supply our faith with everything for it to be lived out and, and, and put on display, we have through the, the very life of Jesus Christ. We're partakers in the divine nature. So we add to the faith virtue. And we talked about virtue last week. It's moral excellence. It's the God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. It's a quality in, his, in a person's life that makes him or her stand out as excellent. It's not just speaking about moral excellence. It's not just musing about it, but it's about putting it into action. It's about living a moral life. 
And then we add to, we supply our faith with moral excellence from the supply that we already have. And then we supply the moral excellence. We supply to that knowledge. Now we talked about it here. 16 times, 16 times no less, in, the, in 2 Peter, it says the word knowledge. 16 times. What we know matters. If we think right, we'll act right. And the, controver and the converse is true. If we think wrong, we'll act wrong. I don't care how much tweaking you put on that. You can take your thinking and my thinking and tweak it ever so small. And it starts out with little subtle differences between biblical truth and it ends up with a big gap and a big divide. But 16 times. That's insight, discernment, and truth properly comprehended. Here's what we can say this morning. Did you know that before we got saved, the, before we got saved, we suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Now we're saved by the very truth that we put down and suppressed and we're righteous and we've been made righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, we don't need to examine or talk about our feelings. Who cares how we feel? It's not how we feel, it's what we know that matters. Some of you in here this morning don't feel good. Some of you here this morning, if you were honest enough to admit it, and some of you are honest enough to admit it, I've had people come up and admit it before. I don't feel so good this morning. I don't even feel like being here. Well, you know what? Praise God. Hallelujah. Every time I've ever went on a ministry call that I didn't feel like going, that was usually the one in which God showed up the greatest. Ignore your feelings. They come and go. They are not trustworthy. They are certainly not an anchor for the soul. We've said this over and over again. When your feelings don't line up with the truth, go with the truth. Because your feelings don't often line up with the truth, nor do mine. We have such a feely, a feely type Christian culture in America. We just got to feel everything. I had the music worship leader at a church that I was involved in, and he said, the people come here for an experience, like they go to a theater for an experience. So we've got to serve it up as an experience. You know what that made us do? I was in charge of the budget for the church. That meant that there was no end how much we'd spend for this. And there was no end how much we'd spend for that. And there was no end how much we'd spend for that. That, 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 uh, that camera, that water projector right there is obsolete. We've got to have another one. And somehow or another, we've got to come up with enough money to pay for it. That's why I've got gray hair. We try to figure out another way to pay for it because it was a black hole and we never spent enough money. If you approach the devil on that basis, you're going to have to outspend him. And I'm telling you right now, he flat knows how to spend money in that endeavor. And you say, you know what, I've got to, I've got to have a feely experience. The problem with that in the body of Christ is that the sheep are damaged by it because when they get out there and the video machine's not playing and somebody's not serving it up like that, their faith is weak and it cannot stand the test of the storm. It's a shame to do that to the sheep. It says, matters what you know. Don't talk about your feelings. Quit doing that. I feel. I feel this. I feel that. Listen, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about our emotions. But that's not the ground of Christian faith. The ground of Christian faith is the Word of the living God. And he said this, Abide in that Word. Look at John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8. Don't tiptoe through the tulips. Me and Scott Holcomb can remember what that means. 
Don't tiptoe through the tulips. Be grounded in the faith. Don't play around with it. Don't toy around with it. Don't, don't, don't depend upon it through another. Go directly to God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And look what He says about it. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in Me, in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It doesn't say set you free. Because if you're set free, you can be entrapped again. But if you're made free, that's a condition that's forever. And look at it. Look at the condition. Do you think we really take God up on this promise? If you abide in My Word, if you hold fast, the pattern of Christian victory is to know the truth, to reckon it to be true about you, and to yield to what you know. Know, reckon, yield. Know, reckon, Yield, no, 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 reckon, yield. We have to oft repeat that. Know the truth. Reckon it to be true of you. And yield to what you know. I don't see anything about feelings in there. I don't see a sliver of Scripture and I dare you to show it to me. Where confidence and saving faith and calling and election has anything to do with feelings. Not one. Not one. You won't find it. Abide in my word. Do you know how important this is? The Apostle Paul said this. I will measure whether or not my time with you was successful by one thing. It won't be how often you meet. It won't be how pretty your logo is. It won't be your location. It won't be your building. It won't be that you're not in debt. It won't be your numbers. It will be none of those things. This is how I will assess whether or not my time among you was wasted or invested. One thing. One thing. And it's Philippians. I want you to go over and look at it. I want you to see it in front of you if you will. Philippians chapter 2. Look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He said, I'll know that I wasn't wasting my time among you if this is true. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. He said, if I find out, if word comes to me through personal experience or through somebody else, that you're holding fast the word of life, then I know that my labor among you was not in vain. It didn't, I didn't waste my time. It wasn't time wasted, it was time well invested. Hold fast. Look at the faithful church in Revelation chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8. This is is the church in Jesus' performance appraisals of the seven churches in which He commends them. 
And He commends them. And it's sometimes, maybe in the heading of your Bible, it might even call it the faithful church. It doesn't mind. And it says unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have beset before you an open door, and no one can, you, can shut it. For you have a little strength. What? And you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Kept my word. Keep it. Abide in it. Hold it fast. No. Reckon. Yield. No. Reckon. Yield. No. Reckon. Yield. No. Reckon. Yield. Go to Steak and Shake today. And before you have the prayer, break out and start doing a chant. No. Reckon. Yield. No. Reckon. Yield. And they'll all think you're crazy. And when everybody comes around you and wants to arrest you, stand up and say, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is alive. No. Reckon. Yield. Know the truth. But I'm not talking about academic. I'm talking about romantic. Let me tell you something right now. I didn't get married until I was 34 years old. I am proof positive that opposites are right. Because I know I'm not a handsome man. But man, I married a beautiful woman. And I'm telling you right now, I ain't looking anymore. Because God sent me the woman and my mother and I prayed for all my life. And I'm telling you right now, I want to know her not so I can have some academic enterprise so that somebody can give me a test one day and I'll be able to pass it. When was your wife born? You have any disciples following her? What's her social security number? I have her social security number memorized, by the way. I do. Praise God. I got mine memorized. It's one. All right, uh, listen. Um, I'm talking about, when we talk about this knowledge here now, we're not talking about some academic process where we know the mechanics of Christianity. We're talking about a romantic process where we know the Christ of Christianity. Where we marry our husband and we get to know him and let us let him coddle us up in his arms and speak sweet somethings into our ear. This word is but a serenade and it is sung by the greatest musician who ever lived. And it is a song to His beloved to tell us how much He loves His dear Son and how that those who come to Him through Him and His sacrificial offering on the cross of Calvary can know Him, be rightly related to Him forever, have the hope of eternal life and serve with Him in glory to His glory forever. That's what the Bible is. I asked somebody this week whose mother had passed a long time ago. And I said, I want to ask you a question. If you rummage through your stuff, and apparently she had a real strong relationship with her mother. I picked up on that through conversations. Highly respected her mother. I said, let me ask you a question. If you rummage through your stuff one day, and you came across a letter from your mother and it was unopened, what would you do? I'm talking about a thick one. Now you get a thick letter... And it's real thick and you know, man, there's like eight pages in there. Somebody really took some time, you know, to, to really express their heart. You had that unopened letter, what would you do? You put it on the shelf and get to it next week? Or would you tear into it? Because you know 
that there's a human being on planet earth that loved me unconditionally and it was my mother and I got a message from my mother and I want to know every little jot and tittle I said that's what you would do I said in your house is a letter from your creator it's comprised of 66 books and it took you 1500 years to work through human authors to get it to you 40 human authors who didn't even know each other and most of them didn't live at the same time wrote a message that's consistent and it's a love letter and it's a portrait of his dear son and how that those who come to faith in him, he bequeaths that kind of love to them and that he loves you. Crack open this letter. It's one thing to have something from your mother, but it's another thing to have something from your creator. And if you trust him as your savior, then you'll have something from your father who loves you so. Hold fast the word of life. Knowledge. Look at it. Luke 24, 25-27. We've gone through these verses before, but we've got to prove it biblically. Because what I say does not matter. What God says matters. Look at verse, look at 24. Knowledge. Knowledge. Not academic, romantic, romantic knowledge. Intimate knowledge. Not about somebody but somebody. Look at him. He's caught up to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're discouraged. Let me tell you why. They expected him to go into Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman army, sit on the throne of David, and squash all opposition, and sit as their eternal king. He goes into Rome on the back of a donkey instead of a limousine, He's scorned by the religious leaders there and his own people called for his crucifixion. He winds up dying on the cross and now because they followed him, their life is in jeopardy too. And all of their hopes and all of their dreams are dashed, every one of them. And they're down here like this, trodden on the road to Emmaus. Jesus catches up with them. They don't recognize him at first. You know how it works. Then he said to them in verse 25, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible was written as a portrait of God's Son. If we approach it that way and we get on our knees before Him and say, God, today, with no phone and no cell phone and no text capability to send or receive, I'm going to lock myself up somewhere. I'm going to sequester myself somewhere. And I want You to show me more about Jesus. More about Jesus would I know. More of His grace to others show. Spirit of God my teacher be. Teaching the things of Christ to me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for me. That's it. Whoever wrote that song, I can't wait to meet him. Because he had a cat head biscuit from the griddle of glory. God, show me. Oh, I want to know what my, your will is for the next five years. Okay. Okay. You're not going to get it. God, I want to know you. Oh, son, it's on. Sit at my feet. Sit at my feet. Let me tell you something. Oh, let me speak something into your ear. 
Then while you do it, you'll find out His will. You'll find out those secondary things. You know why they'll be secondary things? Because He will become the primary thing. And what was primary to you now becomes secondary. Because what primary is to God is now primary to you. And that which you thought was primary is now secondary because you've caught on to what's primary. I cannot repeat that. <laughs> Look what He did with the disciples. And you know what? Watch this. We're going to have, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in just a minute. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. <coughs> what's the greatest performance going on right now on Broadway? What's the hardest ticket to come by? If you could get it, it wouldn't be near worth the ticket you have to sit in that chair and take the Lord's Supper today. Not near. Not near. Because it's mere money that purchased those tickets. But it was the blood of God's precious Son that purchased this one. And hallelujah to His name. So look what it says. Go on a little bit further. He's sitting there. They still don't recognize Him. And look at it. Verse 30. Now it came to pass as He sat at the table with Him, with them that he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And that's when their eyes were opened, and he knew, they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. And later on they report to the disciples in the tail end of verse 35, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, dear one, that's how he's known to us, is through the breaking of the bread. Oh, listen, is the Lord's Supper, but another opportunity to sit at his feet and hear the truths that never get old about the fact that Jesus Christ reached and redeemed a sorry condemned man like me and made me just in His sight. He's known in the breaking of the bread. Jesus goes back to the whole of the Old Testament and says according to Moses and the prophets, which is another word for the Old Testament, He spoke the things concerning Himself. Oh, wouldn't you like to be on that conversation? Then He does it to the disciples. He does it again. Then He comes up on the disciples. These are two followers, but not part of the twelve. Now He comes up on the disciples and he, and he in verse 44 of Luke 44. Then He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written, where? In the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning David and Moses, and Elijah, and Abraham, and all the big shots, and Daniel, and Joseph, the things concerning them? No. He said, these things concern me. This is a Jesus book. It is not a man book. It is not meant to court the favor of men. It is meant to display the glory of God. And the glory of God is displayed in and through the work of God. And the work of God was accomplished through the Son of God. And the reason we know that He's the Son of God is the God of the Word who wrote this, made it known to us, has made Himself known to us. So forget about studying the Bible as an academic enterprise. Study it as a romantic endeavor to know your God. Oh man. Romance the Lord. He romanced you. He calls you beloved. Can you imagine that? Calling me and you beloved? We're beloved to Him because of the work of His Son which He accomplished. Hallelujah to His name. Oh, add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Romantic knowledge of Him. The One who has called you unto Himself. 
You know why so many are susceptible, are susceptible to the error of the false teachers? Not really coming to know Christ. Because without coming to know Christ, Christianity seems to be weighed at the balances and found wanting. Without Him, He's the subject matter of the Gospel. He is the Gospel. And then that itch comes on. And you all, everybody walks around looking for another doctrine, another sensational truth, another, another fad, and say, scratch it right there. Scratch it right there. Andrew's got uh, poison ivy on his neck. I got it on me too. Drives me crazy. And boy, you just want to just scratch it. How good it feels. Just scratch it. Just, oh, just lay into it. You know, and, and, uh, and oh, just after he was talking about this morning, he said, it's killing me not to it scratch my neck right now. And, and you know what? That sensation comes from Christians who do not recognize or affirm the knowledge of the faith they have that you are partakers of the divine nature and you have everything right now that you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your faith, dear one, is not insufficient. It is not. It is not. I'm so sorry for professing brothers and Christians who are under Christian teaching that say you can lose it. I'm so sorry for them. Because that's not the character and nature of biblical faith. It's just not. If it was based on me, then the Bible is a me book. If it's based on Jesus, then it's a the book. And I'm secure and so are you. You haven't been weighted the balances and found wanting. In Christ you have been made complete. Notice what he says. I want you to, I'm saying this as loving as I know to say it. Y2K comes around. I got friends. I got Christian friends who went. And you, maybe you did it to it. I'm not condemning you. Remember Y2K? Am I the only one in here? Sorry, me and you. We remember. <laughs> Scott's going to get mad at me and never speak to me again. Nancy? Nan, I got to tell you something about Nancy later on, though. But um, um, <laughs> here it comes. Um, the Y2K, and everybody, I had friends who got big things of water. You know, and all that, what have you. You know, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Do anybody know what that is when the tables turn in 2000 and everybody's worried about the computer systems breaking down the grid? It was going under and that kind of thing. And it may have done that, but I just want to tell you, isn't it amazing that in the middle of their world falling apart, now listen now, their world is falling apart. These are people who may have been a grocer whose grocery store has been taken over by the government. These are people who may have sold a fruit at a fruit stand and the government seized control of their assets. These are people who paid a price for their Christian faith. And in light of that, there's nothing in here about storing up water. There's nothing in here about retreating to the woods. There's nothing in here. It, it, the whole emphasis, please dear ones, hear me now. The whole emphasis is on holy living in the middle of it. But see, because see, you know what? You and I are going to get an opportunity probably to find out what we trust in or who we trust in. And when everything's taken away or maybe things are not the way they used to be, Christian faith stands firm when it realizes this is founded on a sufficient Savior. It's holy living. We talked about the word holy. Holiness gives a bad rap. People think holy means people who walk around like they got lemon juice. I'm holy. And they wear dark clothing. I'm holy. 
and you're not. These are the things that I do not do. And you're a heathen for having done them. No, that's not holiness. Holiness is a grace of life whereby someone has come into biblical agreement with biblical truth that you've been connected to a God through a sufficient Savior and you are W-H-O-L-E. Whole. Whole. It's the whole life. W-H-O-L-E is what that word means. It means the complete life. That's what it means. And he's saying, you take that faith, express it in virtuous living, moral excellence, protect your integrity, guard it, protect your testimony, because that'll lead, that'll lead, that'll increase your appetite and your, and your receptivity to the Word. And when you're able to hear the Word, and you're able to hear it and receive it, it goes down into fertile soil. It's not going to be blocked by different things that keep it from going down there. It's not going to lay on the surface because that's the hard heart. But it's going to be the heart that's been tilled up through virtuous living, moral living, and, 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 and those who say, I'm bent toward this, I'm pursuing holiness, I'm pursuing it, I'm going after Him. I don't have an idle faith. I'm not settled down. I'm not somewhere on the sidelines. I'm right in the middle. I'm going after God. I'm in a church that with other people, as God showed Eric the other day, who are going after Him too. And their pursuit's helping mine. And I'm hoping that mine's helping theirs. And we're coming together and we're going after Him. We're going hard after Him. We're going hard after Him. We've got some people on either side who will encourage me. And I want to encourage them. Go after Him. Go after Him. Pursue this with everything you have. Add to your faith Virtue, moral excellence. Add to that moral excellence the knowledge of Jesus. Not some just academic enterprise. Not academic truth. Romantic truth. And what will come from that is self-control. That means that, that it means right there that word self-control means holding oneself in. That's what that word means. That, 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 I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm restraining. I, it's like an athlete. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 9.27 when he talked about him buffeting his body to keep it under the control of the Holy Spirit so he might, be, might not be disqualified to preach the Gospel. It's athletes who trim their lamps. It's athletes who don't take weights and things that weigh them down. And, and, but they, they, they run. Nobody goes out. We went out to the, to the track and, and I ran a couple of miles yesterday. It took me... You, 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 they, you, you, uh, you measure my running by the calendar, not by a stopwatch. And so all day long, I finally eke out two miles. And I got through and I thought, you know what? Nobody's on this track with overcoats. What would they think of you if you came out there like that? An overcoat and a hood, a hoodie thing. And just bundled up, just to no end, to, out to go out there and run the track. Wouldn't you look like an idiot? I look like an idiot already. And but to go out there like that and to be encumbered up is say, no, 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 take that stuff. Go through your calendar. Go through your activities. Go through what you're pursuing. Find out what God's in. Find out what He's not in. Discard what He's not in and embrace what He is in. Patience and perseverance in doing right. Patience and perseverance in doing right. That's what perseverance means. To self-control. Now see, we've already been supplied with this. Remember, supply to your faith that which has already been supplied to you. 
Supply to your faith that which has already been supplied to you. Supply to your faith that which has already been supplied to you. Supply to your faith that which has already been supplied to you. You're nothing but a conduit through whom my ample supply, the Lord says, flows. And there's nothing wrong with it. You don't have a deficient faith. You might have a deficient response to it, but you don't have a deficient faith. <laughs> you don't. Not if you're saved. It means patient endurance and doing what's right. Remaining strong in the middle of toil and hardship. And it's not the kind of toil that's like this. Oh, 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 woe is me. Oh, oh. We might feel that way for a season of time, but we need not stay that way. It's the kind of toil that takes place in the middle of inexplicable joy. It says, Hallelujah! Through all of this, this is God's ordained way for me to get to know Him. Hallelujah. The joy set before me, I'll endure every last bit of this, Jesus said. Uh, the joy that set before Him, He endured the cross. It's the courageous acceptance of everything that this life has can do to us under God's sovereign control. And transmitting that to even the worst of situations and seeing it as another step toward upward glory. It's a change of not only attitude, but perspective. Nothing can come my way as a believer except as it stands to make me more like Jesus. That's why it's there. That's why she's there. That's why he's there. That's why they're there. That's why to conform you into the image of God's precious, precious Son. Add to that godliness. It's a fear of God. It means to fear God. You fear God, you won't fear anything else. If you don't fear God, you'll fear everything. Reverence for God. Respect for God. We've talked about this before. The kind of fear that draws you to something, not away from it. I fear Him, and I can draw near Him, and there I am safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're saved. Nestled in the arms of Jesus Christ. The contrast would be if you go look at Romans chapter 3 at the end of Romans chapter 3 when it talks about the fact that no one sees God, no one's doing good, no not one. And the bottom line of that indictment all from the Old Testament says this. Here's the root cause of all of it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every bit of that comes from the fact that there's no fear. I'll tell you this. You lose your fear of God, Henry Blackaby says, and this is true, you'll lose your fear of sin. That's true. I'm going to close by reading you a story. I'm going to read you an account. I don't like to do this very often. This is a little book, a powerful book actually, on holiness, Henry Blackaby. We're about to have the Lord's Supper. Part of the Lord's Supper, part of this whole thing. Let me ask you this. Are you living a godly life? You don't have to nod. Don't nod or this way or that way. Don't do either one. But are you living a godly life? Is that a question worth asking? Would you all agree that's a question worth asking? I mean, does God pose the question here? Add to godliness, supply that which has been supplied to you. I'm not a legalist. Legalism is a belief that you can do something to make yourself right with God. That sums it up. 
God did something through His Son to make us right with Him. And we could do nothing to make us right. But once being made right with Him, He does call us out to holy living. Doesn't He? Is there a clarion call in the Bible to holy living? I'm not talking about the kind that... I'm not talking about lemon living, dressing in dark clothes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a grace of life whereby you have found Him to be enough. That He has scratched all your itches. And every time one comes up, you just nestle up to Jesus and let Him scratch it. And massage you and say, Son, I got you covered. That's not an irreverent way to view God. My, my daughters ask me all the time, Daddy, would you rub my hip or would you rub my arm? And I'd just go to rubbing. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, this is awesome. You know, my son, rub my neck there right there. And all, you know, just being close to one another and loving one another. It's a beautiful thing. God's our Father. I want you to listen to this. And of course, the first thing, the first person this hits to me, it hits is me. So before, if I'm just reading this to me, y'all just endure it till we finish. Andrew Blackaby tells the account of where um, he goes to a, um, um, a missionary uh, conference in Rwanda. Oh, no, he goes to speak to Rwandan missionaries. And they had been there in Rwanda, and they had been uh, moved now to Nairobi. So he's in Nairobi. He's going to Nairobi. He's going to have a, not a conference, but a time to speak to missionaries. Now, these are missionaries who've been through everything. These are missionaries whose homes have been raped, uh, uh, pillaged, and whose family members have been abused. And you know what I mean by that. By the government. And he goes, and he's thinking the same thing that I would think. I would think this. If I was called upon to deliver a message to a group like that, I would feel like, okay, when I get there, I'd rather just sit down and let one of you speak to me. And because you've been through all of this, I don't have anything to say to you. I would, you want to talk about intimidating? That'd be intimidating. And Dr. Blackaby was intimidated. I understand that. So he's thinking about all these things. And he, and he says, all of this was going through my heart and my mind as I was about to speak to our Rwandan missionaries. They had seen such horrible things. They had cried unto God. Many pastors, their dear wives, and their children had been killed. I knew that the missionaries came from South Africa, that the missionaries came from South Africa to Ethiopia. Some had been in prison. Some had friends who had been killed. And some of them had been wounded in the battles. One of the missionaries' wives who came had had a number of soldiers break into her house. And the soldiers beat up her husband and then violated her and her children. And now she's being tested for AIDS. I don't know about you, but when I'm about to speak to a group of frontline warriors, I tremble. I said, oh God, when I open this book, I tremble. These dear people need to see the blazing holiness of God because they are filled with what sin can do. They are immersed in what sin can do. But oh God... Somehow they need to see it stand in your presence. So I took the Bible and began to share. It was one of those rare and wonderful moments. I believe that there will be no revival without holiness in the leadership. None. Cry unto God all you want. He will not hear you. Put together all the phrases that revivalists of other great generations have quoted. It will not make one ounce of difference to the heart of God because God is looking for holiness. While I was sharing with our dear missionaries, I said, who am I to be here? That was one of those times I wished there was another one 
who could be speaking and I could be listening and cry with them. But I was the one who was speaking. I was faithfully opening up the Word of God and taking the verses and saying, see this God? See this God? That's your God. That's Him. He's with you. Suddenly one of the men jumped up and began to weep right in the middle of my sharing. And he said, oh God, I need holiness in my life. I hadn't even talked about holiness. I hadn't even mentioned it. But I did get him through the Word of God into the presence of a holy God. Suddenly, others began to get up. And they said, Oh, I asked for holiness in my life too. And then one of our missionaries began to say, I'm going home and I'm going to trash every video that we have in our home. Since we don't get TV, we brought videos. And we're not, we're not at all careful with what we bought. There's so much we've let our children see. We've said, it's just a little blasphemy in it, but it's a good storyline. That's like saying, no, Lord. There's no such thing as a little blasphemy that it has a good storyline. Those cancel each other out. You just remove the good story when you filled it with blasphemy. I've heard a lot of pastors say, well, it has good moral truths in it, a little blasphemy here, a little sin there. But if you put it in your heart, I can guarantee you that God will not hear you when you pray. And He absolutely will not. And the impure mind and heart do not even know how to pray. The call to holiness and godliness has fallen under ill repute with God's people. These people on the front lines of ministry who had put their life at risk, you would think, would be living holy lives. And yet the Lord called them to a new place. And one of those missionaries, his wives and family have been tortured, stands up and says, I need to be holy. Would to God that that kind of conviction would fall on us. Would to God. I want you to know something. There's nothing needed more than that. We need revival. We flat need it, folks. You know that. You know that. You know that. Because we're spending energy and doing things that are fruitless, absent, absent the presence and power of a holy God. We're not going to get there. And I'm going to tell you this. Revival is not when lost people get saved. Revival is when saved people get repentant and right with their God. And the fruit of revival is lost people getting saved. Shame on us that we would look around at our culture and see the patent evil around us and yet excuse it away when it exists in ourselves and in our homes. Could we ask God? God, do you need... You don't have to, don't, I'm not asking for any kind of public display. I don't, I don't think you would do it, but I'm not asking for it. But I'm going to ask you this. You need holiness in your life in a practical sense? Can we line up with this, this brother, this missionary, and say, God, you know, can we ask God to go through our houses and look at the household idols that may be in there and bust them up and receive His forgiveness? Could we look at every area of our life and let the Holy Spirit illuminate our lives and let's get ready for a soon returning Savior? Could we ask Him for personal revival? As I was going through this, really, this is nothing but the pattern of personal revival. Supply your faith with holy living. 